Welcome to What She Said on 105.9 The Region. I'm your host, Candace Sampson. Black Friday is just around the corner, and with inflation rising and the supply chain being pressed ever harder as the holidays approach, it's fair to say that this coming Black Friday may be one of the most intense in a while. Do you plan on shopping this Black Friday? What are you hoping to find? That's what we're asking over on the What She Said Talk Facebook page this week, so be sure to hop on over after today's show to share. But first, stick around because today's lineup is incredible. The diet industry generates $78 billion a year in revenue, but research shows that 95% of all diets fail. Victoria Wellsby, a world-leading expert on dismantling fat phobia and diet culture, joins me to discuss their journey from homeless and abused with self-esteem that was achingly low into the courageous fat activist and changemaker they are today. They also join me over on the podcast this week for a deeper dive into the damage the diet industry has caused, so be sure to pop on over to your favorite podcast provider and subscribe to what she said with Candace Sampson after the show. If you have teenagers, you might be surprised to hear them throw around terms like trauma bonding and maladaptive daydreaming disorder. Further, they may suddenly seem to be experts in diagnosing people with BPD, depression, and other mental health ailments. Allie Payne, our resident expert on all things teens, joins me to discuss the rise in pop psychology and how to address it with your teenager. Anne Brody joins me twice this week. She is here with her regular Saturday Night at the Movies roundup with the latest and greatest in entertainment this week, including Mothering Sunday, a complex period piece that follows a woman in 1920s England as she navigates a strict classist society and embraces her sexuality without the possibility of marriage. And True Story on Netflix, which showcases Kevin Hart's dramatic talents. She comes back at the end of the show with a star-studded interview that features Venus and Serena Williams, plus the incomparable Will Smith. We've all played with Barbies, but very few of us will actually get to become a Barbie. That rare honor has been bestowed on my next guest. Dr. Chika Orwia joins me to share how she was tapped on the shoulder as one of six frontline workers honored by the Barbie role model program with a doll created in her likeness. Finally, faced with the freedom that empty nests provide and time to focus on themselves, many women over 50 can't help but ask, what's next? Lynette Turner wants to help you answer that question so you can roll into the next stage of your life confidently. Lynette wants you to know that reinvention is not only possible, but 100% worth the effort. It's another full week at What She Said with interviews that empower, educate, and entertain. So let's jump in right now on 105.9 The Region. Welcome to What She Said, Victoria. Thanks for having me. 
I would like to start with uh, your TEDx talk. I want to my listeners to immediately go find that on YouTube because you're absolutely incredible. Uh, but what blew my mind was the ending of that because it really did solidify for me that you have nailed uh, sort of the mindset of this. And um, what was that experience like for you? Without spoiling the end, um, how did you feel at the end of that TEDx talk? Oh, oh, I felt so joyous. You can hear it in it, on the mic. It picks up me laughing because I was just like <laughs> giggling because it was just so much fun. Uh, and standing at the uh, on the stage at the end with my arms out and just soaking in that applause, it just felt like fat joy to me. Just big, fat, sumptuous joy celebration of my body and what I've overcome. It was amazing. How long then has it been since you have had um, FierceFatty.com up and running? Oh, I've... Oh, I think it, I think I changed my business name to Fierce Fatty maybe two or three years ago, but I've been doing this work for about seven years now. So yeah, after my TED talk, I really embraced um, the idea of, uh, of, of identifying as a fat person and just being like, yeah, here I am. When people come to you, what are sort of the initial um, conversations like, you know, is it that they're exhausted from dieting or, you know, is it their self-confidence? What's sort of the initial conversation like? They'll say that I can look at other fat people and think they're beautiful, but my own fat body, I think it's disgusting. I'm unattractive and I can intellectually know that I'm worthy, but I can't believe it. Help me with that. Now you talk about diets a lot. And so how do you get people to shift off of that diet culture? Or what are sort of the conversations around the diet culture that you have with people to get them to understand it's not work, not ever going to work for them? Yeah, well, I say, well, what's, what's happened so far with dieting? Has it made you feel good? Has it made you thin? Has it made Brad Pitt call you up on the phone constantly? Like, like what has it done so far? If, it, if you feel great from dieting, go ahead and do it. If it doesn't, then if you don't, then maybe let's look at what it's been doing to you. And let's look at the evidence. And the evidence says that uh, for the vast majority of people, diets don't work. It makes people uh, bigger. Not that there's anything wrong with being bigger. It's the highest risk factor for uh, eating disorders. It is just um, a whole load of rubbish. <laughs> and so, and we've been direct into dieting. And so let's unlearn all of those unhelpful messages. We, we recorded a longer podcast, and I, I hope people will go over and listen to the entire podcast. But if you could just mention here briefly what you mentioned about the Australian government and the UK government, what they've recently come out with um, in regards to diets. Yeah, so a lot of people think, oh, the idea that diets don't work, oh, it's a fringe theory. It's not, you know, it's, it's just greedy people complaining. But actually, uh, recently, the, US, the Australian government has come out with um, the fact that the idea that diets don't work for the vast majority of people, we're talking 95 to 98% of people, is grade A evidence. Grade A evidence means that it's the best evidence that they can find. Another example of grade A evidence is smoking causes cancer. And so the Australian government has said, our evidence is great evidence, so good, diets don't work. 
Recently, the UK Parliament uh, has been talking about health at every size, and health at every size is the idea that um, we can engage in health-promoting activities at any size, um, intuitive eating, and not discriminate against uh, not discriminating against fat bodies um, as something that's uh, something that is uh, good for people's health, and so governments are now talking about this stuff and so it's not a fringe theory there is never once ever been one single study that has shown any diet works for any more than a small percentage of people for any uh length of time everyone can lose weight on a diet short term almost everyone puts the weight back on or more long term uh, so when you talk with people, then do you talk about intuitive eating or do you talk more about self-acceptance? It's uh, you have to do both. You can't do one without the other because when I, we talk about self-acceptance, really what it is, is unlearning fat phobia. You have to unlearn diet culture and you have to unlearn fat phobia. We pretty much everywhere in the world supports these two uh, concepts that it's, it's bad to be fat and that to stop being fat, you need to diet. And so um, we need to unlearn both. We can't unlearn one without the other. And so it's a two double barrel effect thing there. Okay. You have a podcast. You're very active on social media. You have a blog. You're all over the place. People want to work with you. Where can they connect with you? You can find me. I'm uh, everywhere. I've got a book, podcast, social media, everywhere. It's Fierce Fatty. All right, wonderful. Victoria, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you. Thunder thighs thick, thunder thighs thick, thunder thighs thick. Thighs thick, thighs juicy. Don't be jelly when my thighs shake. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. If you have teenagers, you might be surprised to hear them throw around terms recently like trauma bonding and maladaptive daydreaming disorder. Further, they may suddenly seem to be experts in diagnosing people with bipolar disorders, uh, depression, to name two. Ali Payne, our resident expert on all things teens, joins me today to discuss this worrying trend and how to address it with your teenager. Welcome to the show, Allie. Thank you. Thank you. This is definitely a hot topic. Yeah. You know, I, I you know, other parents uh, that I'm friends with, we're sort of all talking about these things quietly. Like, are your kids suddenly, you know, they have a degree in psychology you're unaware of because they're diagnosing everybody. And so let's talk about, first off, why do the teenagers suddenly feel they're experts in these this area? Okay. So in my experience... Mental health diagnoses are getting better, and because they're getting better, there there are more diagnoses than what there used to be when we were teenagers. This is somewhat in part just because of the pandemic. There has been a measured increase uh, in the number of diagnoses, temporary or permanent, because of the pandemic situation. So they're becoming more common. There's also um, platforms like TikTok and um, things that are putting out these little snippets that our teenagers are watching 
And these snippets are saying, well, if you have this, this, and this, you probably are this. So there's a lot of self-diagnosing going on that we just didn't have access to again when we were younger. And it's it, because of those two things, they are um, more aware of mental health diagnoses and what those some of those terminologies mean, so which is why they're throwing them around more. This is a perfect example of of sort of the pendulum swinging too far on an issue, right? It's fantastic that we're talking about mental health as much as we are, but now everybody's an expert in it uh, without the education in it. So how do we discuss this with our kids, especially as we know teenagers can be quite um, determined to tell you that you don't know what you're doing. They know it way better. So how do you have that conversation to say, you know, maybe we shouldn't rush to judgment on this? Well, first, I think we need to understand some of the underlying issues. So the one that I am seeing the most is that because of the increased number of diagnoses, it's becoming a bit, it's sexy to have a diagnosis. It's cooler to have a diagnosis than not be diagnosed. So a lot of teenagers are saying, well, I have this and well, I have this. And that may or may not be true. But what is true is their need to fit in. And it is sexier and people, they feel more special uh, when they have a diagnosis. There is a version of, uh, of hypochondriacs. There's a version of hypochondria in, in this. Uh, I am not saying this of all teenagers, please. That's not what I'm saying. But when I'm diagnosed, maybe then I'm special. Maybe then I can get a little extra attention because they're seeing their friends get who have um, diagnoses who have IPEs or whatever individual learning plan stands for it in you, where you're, you are listening. Um, and they want that special attention too. So everybody wants a label because everybody wants to feel special. That does come from emotional safety and a true sense of belonging that is missing for a lot of teenagers. And I'm going to say right now, it's not because we're bad parents. We were not raised understanding how to provide, for the most part, an emotionally safe and um, connected home because we weren't raised in it and not that our parents are bad. Um, and so our teenagers are using this as a way to build a safety net. It feels safer to have a label than it does to actually deal with what's going on because they also don't have the intellectual to, intellectual processing to do that. So I am safer if I have BPD, bipolar disorder and anxiety and this individual learning plan because now you can't challenge me on where I feel uncomfortable. Now I don't have to look at what is a permanent strategy for effective coping. What if some of these diagnoses are only temporary? which is not how teenagers present to me. They present to me as, well, this is how I, how I am and this is what I have and I will always be this way and I call BS. Diagnoses are not intended as an emotional crutch. They, and again, I'm not saying this is that people are bad or wrong if they have it. I'm saying for teenagers, yes, they might have some of these things and some of these may be permanent and they may require um, uh, medication and et cetera. But the majority of these things are self-diagnosed, um, let alone temporary, and with the proper coping techniques, which take uncomfortable work, they can be effectively released and managed. And the label and the special learning plan 
means you can't challenge me on that. And any diagnosis ultimately has to come from uh, a trained professional and not uh, somebody on TikTok who diagnoses you in 30 to 60 seconds. So, um, Ali, you always share great information on all of your social channels. And I think this is such a great conversation. I know you're probably talking about it a lot um, in everywhere you are. So where can people connect with you uh, to find out more? Best place is uh, Instagram or TikTok at Ali Payne, A-L-Y-P-A-I-N, or my website, AliPayne.com. Incredible. Thank you for joining me today. This was great. Awesome. Thanks so much. Joining me now for Saturday Night at the Movies is Anne Brody, and Anne is actually here twice this week. So we're going to do our usual review of movies right now, and she's going to be back later in the show with an interview with the stars of King Richard. But first, Anne, let's get to the entertainment that we have to see this week. Okay, so there's a film from England called Mothering Sunday, and it's one of the strangest romances I've seen in, in a long, long while. So it's 1920, and it's, a, it's an elegant manor house. And this beautiful maid, played by Odessa Young, um, serves the, uh, the husband and the family. And the husband, Colin Firth, is always eyes at her, and his wife, Olivia Coleman, notices, and she's completely shut off from him. She's almost not there in this entire film because she doesn't say anything. She just has this look of constant horror on her face. And you get it, you know? Uh, so... The girl um, is, yeah, so he's, he's making eyes at her and she sort of manages to squirm out of it. Off they go to a party for their son who's getting married to a neighboring rich girl. Um, but the maid goes to his house that's empty, except he's there and they continue their affair. So she's class jumping. He is trapped in a arranged marriage. He can't escape. Um, and their love scenes are so sexy. And afterwards, he leaves to go to the lunch to join his uh, bride-to-be. Um, and she, she wanders around the mansion by herself for a great deal of the movie, completely naked. I mean, what confidence. And imagine being caught. So she's up against the, you know, she's not like other people. She's, she doesn't have any truck with the Victorian repression and social status. She, she is a totally unique character. So I, I can't give too much away because it really is worth seeing. And there are so many interesting complications. But she's really a fascinating character. She's just all out. That one looked great. And I have to say, I have a bit of a crush on Colin Firth. So I'm definitely going to watch that one. All right. Tell me, tell me about... Tell me about this one, though, this next one, though, because uh, the dressing down of Janet Jackson... Because this really was a very interesting, um, just the trailer brought up some really unique points about uh, about that, that Super Bowl event. Yes. Well, it still has its repercussions today. What happened to her at the Super Bowl game, uh, Justin Timberlake and their duet bared her breast. I mean, it had certainly it had a metal kind of a plate on it. But anyway, her career never recovered. And his went on to great, great heights. 
Uh, so this is the latest in the New York Times presents malfunction, the dressing room down, um, Janet Jackson on FX. So it's a very scholarly look at the repercussions of that. You know, I mean, it was the NFL, the most conservative, one of the most conservative bodies in the States and powerful and MTV has produced a show. They're responsible for every second. So why did it happen? Well, I'm not going to tell you. You have to watch it. So, but the thing is, she was ruined. She didn't even stay around for the applause. She got on her plane and went right back from Atlanta to Los Angeles. He went out and boasted his way to a terrific kind of a, you know, moment for himself and built on that. So yeah, it kind of makes me resent him a little bit. And, every, you know, I'm sure everybody joins me. It, it really is incredible how far reaching that one event has been uh, in the culture wars. Um, tell me about True Story, because I was surprised to see Wesley Snipes on film. I know. And I was shocked to see it. I mean, I knew he was coming. I just wasn't prepared. <laughs> he, he's not the, the guy he used to be, physically speaking. He's not the big muscular hero, you know, alien fighter um, that we all know and love. Um, he plays Kevin Hart's brother in a Netflix miniseries called True Story, a really interesting uh, case study of a superstar comedian who is off the sauce. He's been clean for a while. His uh, ne'er-do-well brother joins him, also in Atlanta. And the two of them, uh, he just devolves. He makes him drink. I mean, do you make an alcoholic drink? I don't know. But he gets him really drunk. Uh, Kevin goes home with a woman to the Four Seasons. Uh, oh, sorry, Philadelphia. He wakes up. She's dead. The brother comes in, says, look, I can fix this. I know someone. So someone comes in, Billy Zane. And he fixes things and he demands $6 million. Well, the kid, the comedy uh, uh, star that um, Hart plays, the kid. He won't have it. And he sets off a chain of events that are absolutely astonishing. And I, he is such a great dramatic actor. It almost has a thriller edge to it. And he is so good. And he's so complex in this. I, I admire him so much. So definitely see true, true Story on Netflix. All right. So you've got all of these and a whole bunch more over on whatshesaidtalk.com. And you're going to be back uh, later on in the show with a snippet of an interview with stars of King Richard, which is uh, a, a documentary of Venus and Serena Williams, correct? No, it's a feature film based on their father's life starring Will Smith. Thanks so much for joining me today, Anne. <laughs> see you next week. More with Candace Sampson and what she said coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region.
Let's go party. There are a lot of honors that can be bestowed upon us in this life, but there is perhaps no higher honor than having a Barbie made in your likeness. Dr. Chika Urwia is a physician, professional spoken word poet, public speaker, writer, and advocate for racialized and marginalized populations. This year, she was one of six frontline workers honored by the Barbie Role Model Program with a doll created in her likeness. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome to the show, Dr. Awea. Thank you so much for having me, Candice. So the holiday season's fast approaching. So my first question is obviously, can we go out and buy this Barbie somewhere to put it under a tree? So I really, you know, would have wished that that would be possible. However, it is a one of a kind doll, um, meaning that there's just one Barbie doll and it was made especially for me, made in my likeness. And so unfortunately, it's not made for uh, mass production. However, Barbie certainly does have uh, quite an inclusive line of dolls. And so they do have uh, black female Barbie dolls that are available in their line, uh, should you so so choose to purchase. So how did this come to be then? Were you nominated? Did Barbie approach you? Barbie actually approached my agent and uh, they reached out with the opportunity to be involved in the role model program and have the one of a kind doll made in my likeness. And so um, my agent reached out to me and I remember reading the, the, the headline of the email, the subject line of the email and seeing Barbie. And I was like, oh my goodness, like what could this even be about? And then reading the email itself and seeing, oh my goodness, they want to make a Barbie of me. And it was just the most surreal, incredible moment um, to finally, you know, realize that something like that could actually materialize and happen for me. I imagine that you played with Barbies when you were a little girl, much like most of us did. So what was that moment like when you actually saw your likeness uh, boxed up in a, you know, a Barbie package? So certainly I definitely played with Barbies when I was younger. I was obsessed with them, as my mom can attest to. And um, I would always pretend that the Barbies were doctors and poets and performers, much like myself and much like what I had imagined myself to become when I grew up. And at that time, when I was a lot younger, back in the 90s, there weren't necessarily Barbies um, that reflected my identity as a young Black girl growing up with kinky textured hair and Afrocentric features. And so to now have had this opportunity 20 some odd years later, uh, where I now have this Barbie that really is made in my likeness and having had the opportunity to collaborate with Barbie in order to create this this doll that really centralized my values such that, you know, her hair was natural, it was kinky textured, she had darker skin, she had Afrocentric features, she had, you know, the the clothes that that emulate what it means to be a doctor. And so having that for me was really such a surreal moment and it really connected to that that feeling, that longing that I had as a child to see myself reflected in the doll line. You are a role model for young girls. Tell me what you're up to now. What's next for you? Uh, thank you. I, I certainly want to continue to be a role model for for young women, for young boys, for for really anyone who wants to draw inspiration from this idea that that you can step in from the margins and and occupy different spaces, powerful spaces. And so, certainly, continuing on with my residency training is is going to be the the most imminent thing. I'm I'm in the psychiatry residency program at the University of Toronto. I'll be going on maternity leave and becoming a mother very shortly, and that's going to be, um, I'm sure, the most incredible and important role that I have 
and the top priority for me. But um, of course, you know, keeping up with my identity as, as a doctor and finishing my training and hopefully going on to subspecialize in neuropsychiatry, but also continuing on with my other pursuits, my advocacy, uh, certainly continuing on with uh, with my public speaking on the importance of empowerment on diversity, equity and inclusion. And, and also continuing to work with um, Indigo as a board of directors member. And lastly, also writing my own memoir that should be released in a couple of years. And so um, very, very, very excited for the road ahead. <laughs> it's too bad that Barbie hasn't figured out how to clone people. I mean, they're close, but it sounds like you need some clones <laughs> for all that you have going on right now. <laughs> It definitely feels that way. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm curious, where are you keeping your Barbie right now? Is it on display or have you put it away somewhere? So it's currently in a drawer in my living room. However, it is because I'm waiting for my son's nursery to be fully put together. And then I'm going to put it on a shelf in his nursery uh, that is slightly out of reach so that he doesn't knock it down or tear its head off <laughs> when he's old enough. Um, but I'm That makes me laugh a little bit because it's all it's like mom is always watching. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, sort of. I kind of just want it to be, you know, there for inspiration for him to let him know that, you know, you can truly be anything that you set your mind to and that, you know, your your mommy did that. And that means that you can also do it. And so um that's why I I, I just hope to inspire him in that way. Absolutely. It's wonderful. You are a delight. And I thank you so much for joining me. If people want to follow along with what you're doing, where can they find you? Uh, so on Twitter, I'm at Dr. Chika Oriwa. And then on Instagram, I'm at Chika Stacy. And either of those are great. Okay. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much, Candice, for having me. Like a diamond, shine bright like a diamond, shine bright like a diamond. Turning 50 is simultaneously empowering and scary for most women. Faced with the freedom that empty nests provide and time to focus on themselves, the natural question is often, what's next? For the past 15 years, Lynette Turner has worked as a transformation consultant with corporations to help their employees hone their ideas into actionable strategies and clear objectives for forward-moving momentum. After becoming an empty nester, Lynette realized that she didn't have a plan for her own what's next moment. She had spent most of her life identifying as a mother and entrepreneur and never had a plan for, for what she wanted her future to look like. As a result, she decided to lean into what she already knew and adapted her corporate process to transform her own life. Now she's living her dream and uses the same process to help other women realize their dreams. She joins me now to discuss. Welcome to the show, Lynette. Great. Thanks, Candice. Thanks for having me. So what is it about 50? What is the so that moment, you know, what causes this uh, big question yeah, exactly. And, you know, I so many of my friends, as you know, I've been chatting with them and just listening to other women and, and seeing some articles that are coming out. I mean, really, at the end of the day, I think that women that are turning 50 are just faced with a, a decision of, OK, well, I've lived my life a certain way up until now. 
But now all of that's changing. And whether that's, you know, as you had already mentioned, empty nesters, or, you know, maybe they've been downsized at work, or maybe they've been working in a job that for years they haven't really actually really enjoyed doing, but they do it because they were taking care of their family. And so I think that what ends up happening is we have this aha moment at 50 and we say, holy cow, all of a sudden I have all of this you know, the, the luxury of making some decisions now for me. And I haven't once really thought about me over the past 20 or 30 years because I've been all consumed in my other life. So I think this is what's happening. And that is exactly what happened to me. I was this, what I kind of refer to as this mom hustler. I literally was raising two kids full time for the past 18 years. And I focused on two things, my career, so I could feed and house these kids, send them to university. And the other was just raising them and just being there for them as their, as their mom. Um, and then when, when my, my daughter is now out of, out of university, living on her own, my son just graduated high school. And so now he's off on his own. And I woke up one day going, Oh my God, what am I going to do now? So I sat back and walked myself through my plan. I think a lot of us are over 50 now, we're obviously, we're Gen X, and we're hitting this really weird stage of life where we watched our parents chase that freedom 55, and that's just not a reality for most of us, right? It's so true. It's so true. I think that, you know, I think when we get in our 50s, it, the old way of thinking was, yeah, now I've got to get ready for retirement, and I'm going to hit the golf course. And, and that still might be many people's dreams, but I know that the, the community that I'm starting to build around, you know, this Encore Life Academy is these women have way too much ambition. They, or they, and they, they don't want to retire or, you know what, it's now I want to start doing something. I've put my ambitions on the back burner for so long. And now I really want to go out and, and, and take them. I, I think that, you know, when we're over 50, we're often underestimated by society. And then what ends up happening is we sort of fall into what society has always believed that we should be doing in our 50s, and that's maybe getting ready for retirement. But I don't think we're seeing that anymore. Do you think that a lot of women look at this time and, and look around and think they're overwhelmed with choice? They don't know what to do next? Is that sort of the struggle or is it confidence? What is what is it that's causing women to really just struggle with this moment in time? Yeah, I think that, you know, when first of all, let's I'm just going to call the elephant in the room 50. OK, our bodies are changing. We're getting more wrinkles. We're getting more gray hairs. And that can also like that also leads to sort of a lack of confidence. Right. And insecurities for going after what they truly want. First thing that comes out of our mouths or pops into our mind is oh, it's probably too late. And and that's one thing that I've I've seen it. And I've, I've helped these women that have reinvented themselves. And the first thing that we have to get through is this hurdle of feeling confident that they, it is, it's, there is time for them to do whatever it is that they want to do. And I think that we hear so much about living our life's purpose. And I think we can also get stuck because we may not know what our purpose truly is. So that's what you help women do then with Encore Life Academy. So what does that process look like? Is it is it one-on-one -on -one coaching? Is it group coaching? It's a process that I use. So basically it's a step-by-step -step process. We 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 first start working uh together uh as a group. It's it's really group coaching 
Um, and it's finest because you're, you're also learning from other women who are, who are like you, who are in the exact same position as you. So it really is drawing on that community, but it's a process that I take everybody through. Um, and it's first starts by really sort of analyzing what do you want? What, what skills do you have that you could all bring forward into really truly going after what, what it is that you've been putting sort of on the back burner? So when we go through that process, we, we work through the mindset shifts as well. Uh, we're, we're digging deep into the skills and we're, we're working uh, as a cohort to really sort of help each other say, hey, what about this idea? Have you thought about this? Every woman that's gone through Encore Life Academy so far has ended up in a different situation with their work. Um, it, it wasn't always intended to be just to, to stand up a new, new side hustle or to do a new business, but it just seems like that's sort of where it's evolved. So that's what we do. We, we work on, on the skills that you have, how you can repurpose those skills, whether it's launching a new side hustle, starting a new, new company, uh, maybe getting, going after that promotion that you've been waiting for. Um, and, and through that process, We've built sort of this, we build your confidence up to really go after it because you're going to have a real plan of action uh, to, to put that, that new thing into the world. I want people to be able to connect with you then, Lynette, and find that confidence. So how can they do that? Well, I can, you can reach out at Lynette at LynetteTurner.com. Uh, my website is LynetteTurner.com and I'm on Instagram at Lynette Dale. All right. Thank you so much for joining me today, Lynette. Thank you, Candace. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Stick around. More What She Said with Candace Sampson coming up on 105.9 The Region. Welcome back to What She Said with Candace Sampson on 105.9 The Region. The path was never made with Ann Brody had the privilege recently to interview three megastars, Will Smith and Venus and Serena Williams, about the new movie King Richard, which offers a powerful look inside the achievements of all of these greats, but also a close-up of the family love that helped Venus and Serena become the greatest tennis players in the world. Let's listen now. Anything is possible, and to always believe in yourself, never doubt. Doubt does nothing for you, but you, the same time you're doubting is the same time you can spend believing in you and putting the work in so that way you do believe and build confidence. And as a family, you can achieve anything. And that's what I, I really loved about this is that it's a family film. And, and like Will said, or, or if you don't even understand tennis, you understand family. Mm -hmm. And that with a family, you can do anything. Some of us are born with that. Some of us have to create those families, but mm -hmm. surrounding yourself with family can take you higher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Serena? Yeah, Venus put it perfectly. You just really, <laughs> you really do have to um, ultimately just believe in yourself and anything is possible. And it's not too high if you set your goals at the sky. The sky is literally the limit, so 
don't be afraid to set high goals. And I've, I've seen the trailer, I've read the script, and every time I watch it, my eyes are just watering. I think it was amazing to see the, the family atmosphere on the set and how much Demi and Sanaya like really acted like Serena and I, even when the cameras weren't rolling, like holding hands and it was so sweet. And I'm just really proud of what everyone has accomplished. And it's, it's pretty surreal to be honest. And it's, it, they really understood our family and portrayed us in a way that was really us and I'm very proud of that. Yeah, Serena, what about you? Yeah, it's honestly, no word describes it better than just surreal, you know, just to see these incredible actresses and everyone behind it just putting this all together and about <clears throat> our dad's journey, but be because of myself and my sister, it, it really is like, wow, really? Okay, is this like, is, are we, do, are we really something, you know, kind of thing? <laughs> so um, it really, it really is super surreal for me and um, and then to have Will play this role as my father and the way he just embodied Richard Williams it just was it just took the whole film to a, a whole new level it's so emotional it's well done and it's it's a brilliant piece of work yeah I think just to add on that every single person sitting here and on TV that worked so hard to make this a reality and they really cared about telling a story mm -hmm. that was authentic and not just one that was like scripted or could be a formula for whatever. So just thank you. One, one of the first things that was um, interesting in our, in our first meeting we sat down and Venus said, you know, it's almost like they brainwashed us. It was like, because you said it was our, it was like our punishment was that we couldn't play tennis. <laughs> right, because they so they never had to push. It was like that there there was a Jedi mind trick that it was like it wasn't the standard thing that you see of a parent pushing and driving a child. There was that, but it was it was augmenting and flowing, throwing uh, fuel on a fire that they had. It was a fire coming from inside of Venus and, and Serena. And, you know, any, for me as an actor, when I take a role also, I'm, I'm taking it to explore something. I'm taking it to learn something. And that was a new uh, parenting idea for me of aligning with your children versus directing your children. You know, and it was a very, very different um, concept and uh, approach that was 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 magical in the Williams family. That 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 the rules were set, but the 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 rules that were established were divine rules, right? So faith was at the center, and then there was a it was a collective journey we were going. On. It wasn't that as a parent, I know and you don't, so you're going to do what I say because I'm right and you're little, mm. right? And it was a very different approach that, that was, um, you know, somewhat eye-opening for me. My father was military, so it was very different. My, like, you know, I, I, when I was growing up, the, the kids don't, you don't get a vote. Mm -hmm. Right. So you do what's laid out for you, do what's established for you. And, they, you know, some benefits to the, that mindset also. But this was a very different thing. So Naya and Demi had to to learn 
how to play tennis like two of the greatest tennis players of all time. So I, you know, when, when I had to try to learn how to play Muhammad Ali, I, I know how daunting that was. There are professional fighters who can't move and play like Muhammad Ali. Yeah. There are professional tennis players that can't, you know, play like Venus and Serena. And, you know, I was watching uh, Sanaya and I just want the world to know, not only did Sanaya learn how to play like Venus, Sanaya is left-handed. She learned how to play with her off hand. Well, I want to say that I give a whole lot of credit to these filmmakers that, mm. you know, uh, I'm, I'm lucky to be with because, in the, and we got a couple more on screen over there, you know. <laughs> uh, we, they sort of insisted that uh, Miss Orstine would not be in the shadows. Yeah. Mm. Um, and as you said, we have these stories where you have the heroic male figure but to do something where we did not see that Miss Orsine was a co-conspirator of this crazy dream mm -hmm. would have been dishonest. Mm -hmm. um, and we, we worked on that and, and tried to give her um, the, the, the presence that she deserved to have because that was the truth. Yeah. yeah. I think what was interesting too is one of the coaches was actually someone we went to the Rick Macy Academy with. Wow. So it was such a small world that that ended up happening that way. So I think we even really connected in terms of like getting the girls ready to, for this role. It's like we were actually working with someone we already knew. It was, it was, it was definitely a journey. It was persistence of, of definitely Tim and Trevor and wanting to tell the story of my dad and not have it be one of vilification, but one of just getting people to understand you know, who he was as a father and like what he wanted to do and how the family came together to be able to do that. And when it was understood that that was what, what, what we wanted to happen, um, it became a lot, it became a lot easier to get behind it. And so then was the process of actually going to my family, you know, <laughs> after uh, <laughs> uh, reading the script, I was like, you know, this is, there's this opportunity, there's a script, it's a little raw. Um, there's some things that we can definitely finesse and, and get right, um, but this person is behind it and, and we have a lot of respect for Will. And um, he wants to get it right, won't do it unless you know we're really bought into the idea mm -hmm. of what this could be and, and, and doing it right and being authentically ourselves. And that took some time. <laughs> um, you know, because that vilification aspect is still out there and we and, and being able to trust that this group of people, this filmmaker and, and this this production team and everyone would do this the right way when oftentimes in sport, obviously you get one chance at it. Mm. You get one one time to step up to the line and serve that ball for that point. So to, to want to make sure it was right and, and the story was told right and it was fair and it was honest. And it, it really displayed the integrity that we've always tried to have as a family. Um, it, it took some time hmm. to get there uh, with my family because there was a little bit of distrust, as you can imagine. Yeah. You know, um, being in the public eye for as long as they have, Venus. I think the first article was like when she was 10, yeah. eight, eight or nine, eight, maybe nine years old. Yeah. Um, in the Compton Gazette. 
so like to, to be written about since that age you know and and not maybe have people understand um what that family dynamic was like oftentimes lindre and i have people asking us are they really are you guys really close you've been listening to ann brody's interview with the stars and subjects of the new movie king richard in theaters now be sure to check out ann's review on what she said talk.com before you head out to see it that's it for what she said for this week stay up to date with our newsletter by signing up at what she said talk.com and be sure to follow on social at what she said talk on facebook instagram and twitter for videos of these interviews and more Finally, be sure to subscribe to What She Said with Candace Sampson on Apple and Spotify to re-listen to this episode and find full details for all of today's guests. I'll be back next week with more What She Said on 105.9 The Region. Previous episodes of What She Said on 1059theregion.com.